Welcome to Heroin City, the podcast championing women in history and putting them back into the history books. I'm Lindsay, and today we will be talking about Northern women. With us in Heroin City today, we have Kate Fox, a stand-up poet, broadcaster, facilitator, writer, and neurodiversity advocate. She is the author of Where There's Muck, There's Bras, True Stories of the North of England's Women. She's a regular contributor to Radio 3's spoken word cabaret, The Verb, has made two comedy series for Radio 4, been poet in residence for the Glastonbury Festival and the Great North Run, and completed a PhD in stand-up performance and marginalised identities. Welcome to Heroin City, Kate Fox. Shouldn't we say Dr Kate Fox, though? Well, um, yes, no one does, and I've sort of forgotten. And weirdly, the only people who do and properly insist on it, and this is almost a rule, mechanics. Mechanics in garages. (laughs) Like, if I ever ring and I, I'm asked for my title and I hesitate and then I overshare and go, well, it's not really Mrs. And anyway, I'm divorced and actually technically it's a doctor, but not a useful doctor, you know, just one in stand-up. And only mechanics will not quail and will, in fact, go, you earned a PhD. You are doctor. So, yes, we could say doctor. I think it's actually appropriate to what we're about to talk about. It's self-deprecating and you should say doctor. But I love that you've just perfectly illustrated one of the traits, I think, that we're going to talk about in Northern Women. Should we explain to everyone where you are as well? Because I think that's quite exciting. Yes. Well, I'm in Whitley Bay. I'm near the sea. I have the sea at the bottom of my road. So I'm 10 miles from Newcastle upon Tyne and I'm in my little flat, which has been a brilliant haven during the last three years of strangeness and is now a good place to write and to have written about northern women. Quite right. So this is your lockdown project, wasn't it? To write this wonderful book that I've just read, Where There's Muck, There's Bras. And it's the true stories of amazing women of the North. Now, Obviously, I was drawn to that title, but we need to clear up straight away. As someone who is a Midlander, I often get called a Northern and I'm quite happy about it. And I'll take that accolade. I'm quite often down south and that's what I get grouped in as. And I'm quite proud of that. But ultimately, I always say, well, it depends where you're from. If you're from up north, I'm a Southerner. So it gets very complicated for me being in the middle. Could you please, for everyone, define what a Northern woman is? (laughs) Okay, And I think you have proved brilliantly, Lindsay, how um, Northern is a relative state, isn't it? So when Christopher Eccleston's Doctor said in the first episode of the first series of the new Doctor Who, lots of planets have a north, he was being very wise. I personally, I'm going to be quite unusually directive now, I would not class you, Lindsay, as a northerner, clearly by your geography and by your accent, which I really love hearing, actually, a Leicestershire accent, you are a Midlander. Um, but relative to the people who tend to define these things and believe that everything and everybody outside a kind of narrow band in London and the southeast, you know, the folk with power culturally, they would define anything geographically north as the north. People would ask, what is the definition? Partly, it's a state of mind. Um, Partly, traditionally, it's the traditional seven counties of the north. I would say the debatable lands, for me, are, I mean, Sheffield, yes, that is the north, that's, you know, South Yorkshire, but Mansfield, Chesterfield, oh, we're right on the edge there, aren't we? We're at the top, Nottinghamshire. Mm. I think we're technically Midlands, but actually so many people in Chesterfield and Mansfield will feel 
northern. They were partly identified because they won't want to be classed as southern, partly because there's not a strong and definite enough Midlands identity, and partly because what they perceive as northern, which might be probably a industrial or deindustrialized, probably working class identity, feels northern. But there's another complicating factor. I would get a lot of people coming up to me when I toured where there's muck, there's bras as a show, and they would be so apologetic. And they'd be like, I'm really sorry, I, I, I am a northerner. I was born in the north. My family are from the north. I feel northern, but I have lost my accent. Can I be northern? And I'd be like, yes, of course you can be northern. You, you identify with the north. You're from the north. You don't have to confess to me as if I'm some sort of northern priest that you have lost your accent. Of course you've lost your accent because it's it's downgraded. It's seen as lesser. I'm a rare woman who has exaggerated my accent, probably. But generally, women more than men, we lose our accent because we have to get on in the world. So now we've defined a northern woman let's talk about your journey to writing this wonderful book i suppose i have um without realizing it for quite a long time been really interested in both northernness as an identity and what that might mean and you know being a woman as an identity and what that might mean although for many years i was in denial about that being a thing as a radio journalist I was told very early on that my northern voice was too northern to read the news. And I at one point went to work in a radio station in Manchester and I took the job because I was going to be a newsreader on a breakfast show. And an American radio consultant called Dennis um, told the radio station that it would be better if I didn't actually read the news bulletins I'd written because there was already a female co-presenter on breakfast and listeners just confuse female voices because they all sound the same to them. Um, what I should have done is sued them, <laughs> but uh, actually I just, you know, was resentful and eventually left. Um, and then I started doing stand-up gigs, stand-up comedy gigs at a time when not many women were on the stage doing stand-up. So I was kind of noticing, but not noticing, like a fish swimming in water, not really knowing what water is. I was noticing that there was something about my northernness and my voice that gave me some opportunities and took others away. Something about being a woman with that voice the same, even more so when I started um, doing poems on Radio 4. Bit of a leap there, but I basically started doing performance poetry, entered a performance poetry competition, got spotted by the commissioner of Radio 4, um, and she saw it as a positive that I was a northern voice and a woman. So I was like, okay, this is a thing. This part of my identity embedded in my voice is a thing. Surely everyone else has noticed this. No, people didn't seem to talk about it. People didn't really note, as far as I could see, the lack of maybe northern female representation in certain contexts. It seemed perfectly natural that, for example, we would have, of course you wouldn't have a newsreader nationally with a northern accent, um, not until Steph McGovern from Teesside, who got criticised for her accent. Um, and eventually, to cut a long story short, um, I got the chance to do a PhD 
at the University of Leeds. I'd always wanted to do one, never thought I would get funding or time, but I went along to an open day and I spoke to this lecturer in performance and they were looking for performers to do research on their own performance. And I was like, well, it seems to be quite relevant to me that I'm Northern and a woman and... I'm interested in speaking to other performers, particularly comics, stand-up comics, you know. I'd been involved in mentoring Sarah Millican, the comedian, and I could see that she was treated in certain ways and reviewed in certain ways. And then basically I did this PhD and then realised, hurrah, it's not just a chip on my shoulder. I wasn't imagining it. Northern women are, for various reasons to do with class and gender and representation, seen in a particular way. So once I'd finished the PhD, there was a great exhibition of the North in the Northeast in 2018. The then Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne, decided he was going to bring culture to the North. We obviously didn't have any. And I suspected correctly, as it turned out, that lots of their focus would be on Northern men. And they would be really open to a suggestion of a show about Northern women. I hadn't planned to do as much research and to talk as much about lists of women. Ideally, would have just put my PhD on the stage, but obviously nobody would have come and seen it. I mean, the average audience at the Edinburgh Festival is seven. I think the average readership for a PhD is probably three. So this combination would not have been good, but maybe a show about the many and diverse Northern women that have ever existed might capture people's imaginations. And it feels like it did. Mm, Very much so. How did you narrow it down? I'm sure that there are plenty of people that you wanted to put in but couldn't. What made you pick the ones that you picked? Oh, it was the hardest bit. It felt like the book could have been twice as long. Criteria was sort of notable, whatever that means. I mean, what does that even mean? Notable, and then I picked particular fields, so sport and writing and the stage and politics and the more nebulous category of thought leaders and activists. And I didn't want to write too much about women who'd already been written about a lot. Although Emmeline Pankhurst is a very notable northerner, I actually write more in the book about one of the Pankhurst sisters, Adela Pankhurst, who got banished to Australia. And all the Brontes, it was important to write about the Brontes, but actually I don't go into great depth about them. I end up talking a bit more about the writer, for example, Margaret Cavendish, who is a bit underknown, but actually wrote the first science fiction novel that had ever been written by a woman. I wanted to write about some contemporary women. It's not just history, but maybe about contemporary women who might be in danger of being forgotten in the future. And then that's a bit nebulous because, for example, the politician Mo Molum, only 20 years ago, she was the secretary for Northern Ireland. She was a really popular politician. You know, people were really upset when she got cancer and died far too young. But at the same time, only 20 years later, she's being left out of articles about the Good Friday Agreement. So people can be forgotten quickly. A broad selection, but it's not every Northern woman who ever lived in a little part of me, wishes it was, but that would be too long. <laughs> well, it's a series. Just keep churning them out. Keep checking them out there. I did no notice at certain chapters at the end it's and this person and this person you know it's kind of yes. you, you, you're like, oh god i'm gonna put that one in and i feel same way about what we're doing here with heroin city but the beauty is i don't put an end point on it and it's really interesting what you're saying about doing this for future generations because 
Although there are women now that we think no one's going to forget that person. They're well documented. It's everywhere. There's pictures everywhere. It happens. And we had an example, Pamela Coleman-Smith, our second episode podcast woman, who was super well known in, in her day and prolific in her work as an illustrator. But she just went by the wayside and then stopped being talked about and then just drifted off. And now you can find her. And once you find her, you're, you're quite surprised that we don't all know her name. And that's why we're doing what we're doing here. And then Margaret Cavendish again connects to Bess because she's Bess of Hardwick's granddaughter-in-law. Oh, so, really? Yeah. I did. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Makes a note. Okay, yeah. She was the dynast that started all of that line, and there's lots of different dukedoms that kind of span off from her. And she's there, yeah. She married yeah. into that line, the Cavendishes. Okay, and I love that, because that feels like there would be this really interesting set of other connections that could then be made. And that's part of the joy and excitement, isn't it, of uncovering these, it's almost like secret histories that shouldn't really be secret histories. That puts us into the next question. You felt a couple of times as you were researching, there were local names that you felt like had you known about them as a kid growing up they would have made a difference to you and Bess is someone I found late in the same way so I was inspired but I was also annoyed if I'd have known about this self-made squire's daughter who'd done all these things and then ended up where she did that would have been really fascinating to me I totally understood when you said about Phyllis Bentley was it and then the politician yeah, Margaret Wintringham yeah one of the earliest entrance into the House of Commons from Silsden, very near where I grew up, but certainly was never mentioned in our school at all and could have been a real role model for particularly us girls. Do you think that's shifting? Do you think that's something that this is all helping with? I mean, yeah, it's definitely shifting. I think 2018 was a big shift when there was a lot of celebrating of the centenary of some women getting the vote and this emphasis on, hang on, uh, how can we celebrate women in our towns? Money was made available, which I suppose is always important. Um, it was around the same time as Me Too. So yes, there is a shift. Not as far as we need it to be, I suppose. Like, was it just something that flared up temporarily and then we'll go back to? I suppose not, but um, we're still so much further off equal representation than I would ever have expected that we would be at this point. I want to go to the first spirit of the book, Carter Mantua, because we again mention her. She comes up in our Boudicca podcast as the person that we don't know about. We know about Boudicca and then we kind of talked about different ways that Boudicca was, her narratives being used by different people throughout history. Now, Carter Mantua, who was yeah, arguably more successful she has not been talked about in the same way and she has a fascinating story in herself and why isn't that taught at schools why isn't that not a name that we know in the same vein as Boudicca so let's talk about her because didn't you say that you felt like her spirit followed you around is her spirit here is she with us <laughs> yes I think she is with us in a, a sense because she more than any of the other women in the book is almost a mythical figure because she's so far back in time and so determinedly forgotten yeah she lived at the same time as Boudicca but because she sort of cooperated with the Romans instead of raising an army against them, and actually she was the queen of the Brigantes tribe for nearly 40 years in her own right. 
and kept her people safe in an area of the country, going from the top of the wash up to kind of where Hadrian's Wall is now, maybe. It's possible that her centre of operations was in Catrick in North Yorkshire, and there are still excavations to be done there. Yeah, she wasn't a consort. She ruled in her own right. But the history of her was written by the Romans. Well, she wasn't a Roman. <laughs> she was a Celtic tribal queen. So the Romans were not necessarily writing about her with admiration. And there almost is no other history. But of course, Boudicca was written about. Why? Well, she is... I mean, there's lots of complex reasons, but I'm going to really summarise it very simply as Cartimandua was northern, Boudicca was southern. And the writers of history subsequently are from the south of England, not from the north of England. And sometimes powerful myths will be buried because of the potential power of them. If I honestly feel like if the Cartimandua myth was revived, that would also symbolise and signal a revival of a recognition of a northern English pride and identity that is almost, is repressed, it's definitely repressed. So I'm so glad I am part of a circle of writers beginning to remember and recognise her. So who knows what that will dig up, because she was a powerful being. I never thought about the north-south part of that. We could get into that for a whole other podcast, which, or maybe we'll do a complimentary podcast, which would delight me intensely. But for now, just to clarify, her spirit is here. It's all around us. Yeah, and, and in fact, it's particularly here because on Wednesday, it's in bulk, St Bridget's Day, and the Brigantes identified Cartimandua uh, with Bridget's goddess of fire and smithing and prophecy and sorcery and poetry so if there's ever a day to remember Cartimandua I know in a weird way that is how I knew that this the archetype of Cartimandua is accessible because she was in her time a symbolic figure and we still have that symbolism alive and accessible to us now we just don't always use it to recognize what's been lost in the sense and representation of particular places where it's relevant and we are going to put a post out about saint bridget yes we're going to discuss that and why there were connections and why perhaps she was perceived in her time as someone powerful and spiritual and connecting all these different tribes for that reason there was a lot to do with where that came from before we actually go into talking more about some more of those women i'm going to ask about the thread when you're talking about all these women all I see is connection, connection passed down, threads going through. And actually you talk about it, their way of doing what they do, deciding to do it because they realize they're perhaps better than the next person or better than the boys, putting all their time and effort into this thing that they do. And then after they've had that moment in the spotlight, making it easier for the people coming up behind them, that seemed to be the pattern. And you mentioned that it's a pattern. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I'm glad you spotted that. And I did feel it maybe particularly in the sports chapter. I think you've got a double whammy. I'm not going to say that Northern women are more likely to do this. 
But if you have got people living in communities where there is a sense of solidarity and togetherness, so that will still tend to be working class communities more often, then that solidarity means you're more conscious of, you know, this isn't just for me, this is for everybody, and this is for who's coming after me. There's not as strong a sense of the individualism. Um, and lots of the sportswomen were massively supported by the communities that they came from and were celebrated by them. So I'm thinking of Dorothy Hyman, for example, a sprinter from the 1950s um, who has the Dorothy Hyman Stadium named after her near Barnsley. So she's not a national figure, but she is still recognised and supported locally and went on to become a swimming coach. I think politicians, not all of them, but many of them in politicians, recognised how hard a journey they had and wanted to make it easier for those coming after them, basically. So I think that's the why. And yeah, it probably is a bit enhanced in Northern women. You know, it's one of those tropes that you can be proud of. And I think that's something that potentially feels like in areas now in the modern world can lack Absolutely. Where there's a narrative of individual success, I did it by myself because I'm exceptional. Uh, any of those narratives that lead to the sense of just me on my own because I was so flipping brilliant, not only are they even more damaging, I think, for the people who end up very lonely at the top of a mountain with their achievements going, oh, I did this. Oh, oh, oh no, no one's around me now. It feels a bit rubbish. Yeah, I think it cuts um, the potential off to share the, the achievements. I really did notice it with the sportswomen because often they were getting into these worlds where the odds were stacked against them, where you had kind of sporting management bodies who were not particularly sympathetic to women doing their thing or working class people doing their thing. And they were kind of coming up against all this bureaucracy or these obstacles and so even more, it was important to have a community to be part of, to go back to. Again, thinking of politicians, really. Mo Molam having her constituency in, in Redcar in the northeast. Ellen Wilkinson, before her, a Labour politician who was tipped as a future leader of the Labour Party by the 1950s. And she was kind of known as Our Ellen in Jarrow. What a relief that must have been after being in a hostile atmosphere of the House of Commons, but coming back to your town, not her hometown, she was from Manchester, but coming back to Jarrow and being Our Ellen. It was really powerful. And the Brontes, you know, just to I suppose the most famous writerly example, they would go off to London, Charlotte particularly, to kind of sell their books, talk to publishers, and she liked being out and about and being part of society. But without that grounding in Haworth, in West Yorkshire, where they were from, that being known, having, I suppose, keeping your feet on the ground, I would want to say as well, um, I think they would really have struggled. And that is, yeah, quite a, an ongoing theme. Mm, definitely and a really strong one and something that I think everyone should take from no matter where you're from I'll go as far as to say our women's football team is the best because of that and they talk about how brilliant it is regardless of whether you're going to be a an Olympian or a World Cup winner get involved because in sport you will find family and your the people that understand you and community and that's something that you mentioned again in the book yeah absolutely although it is reminding me there is this constant tension too so there are certain communities where there is a sense of don't get above yourself don't get too big for your boots don't you be going off somewhere so 
actually, I really loved it when there were the stories of women being supported by those communities and not held back by that sense of I can't break away. And I suppose I have to be realistic and say a lot of the exceptional women who maybe never got to shine in the way they could have shone maybe didn't because they were not there's something about a, a really elusive balance between being the you who you are and doing your individual thing and being part of a community I mean that's like a very human dilemma and tension isn't it but um yeah really there's something in that too I think but I think you're right, those women that confidence was instilled in them one way or another, whether they figured it out themselves or whether it was their family upbringing. When they had that, they were able to see the benefits of having that kind of strong identity and grounding and then going off into the world and having that as, as something that they could come back to. I think that's when it really works. But you're right. I'm thinking of the swimmer. Is it Hilda James? That There are a couple of times where I kind of got a lump in my throat and it was I wouldn't have even realised this, but it was the sports people. I think because obviously there's such a window. And if you miss it, it's gone. Talk a little bit about Hilda James, because I think she's fascinating. I loved Hilda James. And a lot of people identified with and were moved by her story. I would have loved more stories like hers, but hers were the hardest to find because she could have been. But but she was a, a, a was a was been that's not even a thing um she was a was she was she was she did she did she's a did no i don't know she's a did yes she's a doer basically she was a swimmer from liverpool um she set loads of world records she was known as the english comet um she went to america in the early 1920s when swimming was a demonstration sport and she was kind of welcomed by the american team and went round with them and johnny weissmuller who went on to play tarzan but was also an olympic swimmer um, sort of kissed her at one particular ball event in new york and it was a kind of almost a glittering world before her because she was this brilliant swimmer and actually pioneered doing freestyle front crawl as she wasn't shy to ask the Americans, how come you've basically beat us really easily in these races in the Olympics? Please show us what the stroke is. So she was tipped for absolute glory at the 1924 Olympics. And then her mum basically wouldn't let her go (laughs) or or said, I have to chaperone you. Her mum had always been jealous of, annoyed about, threatened by her swimming success. And sort of it feels like she basically got the chance to sabotage it because Hilda was under 21 she wasn't classed as an adult able to make her own choices make her own way she had to give in to her mum saying this knowing the international olympics committee didn't allow chaperones i mean imagine i just i still can't quite get my head around that so Hilda should have you know been a gold medal swimmer at those 1924 olympics instead she was taken up by the cunard cruise liners as a celebrity swimming coach because she was well known she was a real funny charismatic personality um she did all these kind of swimming demonstrations and dives and um showing off her her front crawl that now everyone was doing but it's still a sense of but her place in history should have been completely assured and it kind of has been because her grandson wrote about her and campaigned to get her included in the International Swimming Hall of Fame by the 2000s. And then I happened to 
read a bit about her because I was very determinedly Googling things like swimming, Liverpool, Olympics, you know, Cumbria, looking for lesser known stories. And I really identified with hers. I love that we are now remembering her and maybe her story being included is the one I'm proudest of in the book because I followed an intuition and an instinct and a, and a feeling of connection actually yeah brilliant hers was one that stood out as surely someone's got to write the film someone's got to write the series whatever it may be because it sounds like not only was she the personality but the, the journey she had should be depicted somehow I think absolutely and um <laughs> as I say in the book often Maxine Peake the actor who has is doing amazing work in highlighting many aspects of, of northern women from Beryl Burton the cyclist to the um mining activists of the 80s she should sort this out get this off the ground I can I can actually see the film I can picture it so clearly there's this the scene at the end where she's in her 70s and goes to a swimming gala and shocks the crowd because they think why is this little old lady you know swimming she won a medal once whatever and then she gets into the pool and zooms up and down and does some of her old diving tricks and the crowd are on their feet and then I can see a flashback scene where she's in this New York ballroom where there's Johnny Wise Muller and they're having a little case behind the stage type of thing I can see it so vividly I feel like I've watched it me too so I want to see that talking about Hilda's this was a whole chapter which a cracked me up when I saw it there's a whole chapter on Hilda's and b I was very excited because we posted about her Hilda of Whitby tell us a little bit about her and the spirit of her again I imagine not only Cartmantra but also Hilda Whitby is around Absolutely. Oh, I love Hilda of Whitby. I definitely have a What Would Hilda Do t-shirt in my (laughs) head sometimes when I'm doing things. I mean, she was this massively important, influential figure in the North because Whitby Abbey was where it was all happening. It was where it was the centre of debates about how Christianity would be in the future. Um, It was a centre of learning and teaching. She was known as this really wise but capable administrator. Um, I mean, her background, she was basically a pagan princess, um, all very Game of Thrones when she was growing up, warring kingdoms, her dad being assassinated, he was on the throne, and she was just going to go off and live a quiet life in a convent in France, away from all the general chaos. But then she was asked by her, I suppose, spiritual mentors, St Aidan and St Cuthbert, well, St Aidan particularly, to come and run these abbeys, which were mixed abbeys, men and women together. I think we have this sense that history is linear and, um, yeah, women were always repressed and then they got a bit freer. But no, at that time, Hilda was one of several women running religious and cultural communities having a real impact. She discovered Cademan, the first English poet who was a cowherd um, in their community, and she heard him making up these songs, kind of biblical songs, and she was like, hang on, Cademan, hang on, hang on. This would be a good way to spread the positive Christian message. She must, it must have been a really hard gig for her, I think, to kind of come up against the heads of Roman Catholicism, Celtic Christians. You've got St Wilfred, who sounds like a really villainous bishop in the northeast. And she's tactfully getting them all together to kind of try and work out a path forward through Celtic and Roman Christianity. 
I admire her hugely and I'm very sad that when you go into the gift shop at Whitby Abbey, you see wall-to-wall bats. Of course, Dracula was set in Whitby. And in fact, I asked, there was a tiny little postcard of a window of Hilda that's not even in, obviously, in Whitby Abbey because it's just ruins, but a window of an abbey that depicts her somewhere in Oxfordshire, I think. And that was all they had of her. And I was like, what? You've got this amazing female figure, again, who could be so inspiring because she's this teacher, this administrator, this strategist, this, and you're not celebrating at what's going on. 100%. She's a fantastic person to drill down on and, and bring out again because she was, that's the thing again, she was so well-known and so pivotal. Like you say, we think it's linear. There were ebbs and flows and there were fluxes and there were moments when things were redefined for the benefit of small percentages of people and that's where these things shifted illustrates very well why those roles have been downplayed in recent history and I say recent history I'm still talking hundreds of years but that's what we need to unpick and that's what we need to shine a light on because I think um, the narrative has suited certain people and not others and we need to rearrange that and show all its multifacets. and these women are brilliant examples of how it wasn't that women weren't listened to at different times they were absolutely listened to and absolutely held their own and absolutely were respected by everyone and I think that's fantastic that she brought everyone together it's another commonality between Cartmantua and herself you know extreme diplomats brilliant at seeing all things multifaceted all at once all the moving parts knows exactly how to behave in different situations with different people but in in order to bring them together and inspire them to to come together and I think that's fantastic you've just put that so beautifully and I I can't help thinking so because you were asking, is the spirit of Cartimandua with us today? And it's kind of important, isn't it, that we see figures like Cartimandua and Hilda of Whitby as still in some sense living, not necessarily in a mystical sense, but in a, although I'm quite happy to go down that route myself, um, but for mainstream consumption, still living in the sense of, look, these are the roles that are potentially open to us as women, we're somehow not seeing them all being fulfilled, uh, actually. Why might that be? Why is the conception of a northern woman still more likely to be Hilda Ogden from Coronation Street? And the reason for my Hilda's chapter, apart from that I love that Hilda means to battle or struggle on, I felt like these, these archetypes or stereotypes of northernness, and they are all applicable, um, but I think mostly if you say Northern woman, people are far more likely to see Hilda Ogden, a matriarchal, I suppose, a caricature um, of a working class womanhood, um, which is a really important archetype, very important to our history and who we are now. Um, but they're less likely to also see Hilda of Whitby. Now, it's quite hard for us as a society to hold multiple conflicting images at once but I really maybe I really wanted with the Hilda's chapter which also includes Hilda James who we talked about the swimmer and Hilda Baker who was a music hall comedian who was a precursor to Victoria Wood who in turn was a precursor to say Sarah Millican let's hold them all in our heads they're all northern women they're all women they're all humans 
Absolutely. And that's something that you're talking about the spirituality. When we feel like something's wrong, it's because it's in our DNA that we did all these things as women, as Northern women, if, if you identify as a Northern woman. These are women that are in our DNA as well as in the materiality of this United Kingdom. It's there. You can physically see these things. You will be in constructs that they were part of creating when it comes to if it is religion, if it is a day that you celebrate, if it's a bank holiday that everyone understands, you know, whatever it might be, they're in the fabric of everything that we do. And whether we recognize it or not, they're still there. So it's just looking back and going, oh, oh God, that makes so much sense. And I think that's what happens when you read the book as well as do the research that we're both doing you just go yes of course that makes sense and things they click in a way that I think it's not that we're redefining anything we're just going back to what makes sense like the way you go back to Margaret Cavendish and the idea of coming up with a place that your sanctuary is made up world that you can escape to and then you you connect that to the Brontes and that's something that Virginia Woolf talked about at Room One's Own I mean it's all connected and Christine de Pizan did it back in the day she wrote about women who you could look up to and be inspired by and they're all there in history and that was her point is that these women in the past have done this and she did that in the 1400s Bess of Hardwick did it with her tapestries up at Hardwick Hall that still exists you keep talking about what would Hilda of Whitby do we talk about the fact that Bess felt like what would Cleopatra do in the episode we talk about her granddaughters getting that from Bess having Cleopatra on her walls in the tapestries and during the civil war someone asked them how did you manage and they said we practiced Cleopatra in captivity that's what they did I love that and that is so relevant to something I'm thinking about at the moment I'm currently being very Buddhist and I'm very fascinated by how the, in a particular strand of tantric Buddhism you basically you become a particular female Buddhist deity and you do it in various creative visualization so to say we practiced Cleopatra sounds exactly that. I became Carlton Mandra, I became Hilda of Whitby. And just because you're Northern, you don't have to become another. As, as proved, you can become an Egyptian woman. But there's something about reaching beyond where you yourself are in some sense. But maybe in a way where you can identify with whatever it is you're reaching beyond. It's just, I mean, I want to say it's just a... Just a psychological process of extreme inner transformation. That's all it is. Oh, minor detail. And yet, everything. It is everything in the world that we've got currently where we are wanting multifaceted hero. We are wanting to know the warts and all. I think it's very important I think where we're going, well, hold on a minute. These people that have been this, this and this stereotypically are also this, this and this, which is fine. But also within that using the kind of quote-unquote normal aspects of that person doing something extraordinary as part of what you admire in them so it's in in the same way that we we are now capable I hope you know as we evolve to see that there's no point putting people on pedestals because at the end of the day they're human beings and they're multifaceted and they're going to have done things that aren't great because that's all of us we all do Um, and then there have been moments of amazing genius or amazing inspiring whatever it may be but that's all part of this that's all part of you know looking at things from a 360 perspective instead of two-dimensional characters based on one idea of what we should be and I think that's what your book does too isn't it Absolutely. And I, although I, I mean, I tread a line constantly in the book between 
reinforcing every stereotype of northernness going from the true grit and the resilience to the down-to-earthness and I kind of celebrate that and also wanting to overturn those stereotypes and go yeah northern women can also be uh you know middle class can also go off and live in America like um Frances Bennett Hodgson who is seen more as American but actually she's from Lancashire or Leonora, Leonora Carrington, the surrealist artist whose kind of Lancashire roots are often not recognised. Um, you know, we can be these multiple. And at the end of the day, I then all a bit of me wants to go, yeah, we're inherently, there's something specific about us northern women. It comes from the soil. It's like, no, it doesn't really. It's partly cultural, I think. Um, and partly bit of an accident of birth isn't it really yeah I think just the fact that you've kind of shown all these women and what they're all capable of I mean a classic one that I loved that, that I didn't know about before was the um Hall's headscarf revolutionaries that those women who just decided at that moment they were like right that's it enough and it just took that moment of absolute clear clarity to say right I've had enough of this it will change and the absolute dogged belief that they were right at that moment that made everything change and it and that was a brilliant illustration I think of someone that you know not a politician not even involved necessarily in the industry that she went and changed what was the main woman's name? so we had Lillian Belocker Big Lil who um yeah worked worked in a fish factory but was not on the trawlers and now 60 men in quite a short space of time had died on those dangerous ill-regulated trawlers and she march down the docks where women were not supposed to go because it was unlucky for women to be uh, by the sea ridiculously and gathered a group of women who said they were going to march on the Prime Minister Harold Wilson's house if he didn't meet their demands and they met with him in London and he did so those women actually at that moment had more power than the men on the trawlers did because the men on the trawlers were either on the trawlers or not wanting to get sacked and it was the women who changed things and said enough is enough but Lillian basically was kind of lost her job and really she wasn't it would be lovely to think that she spent the rest of her time the rest of her life in Hull with um trawler men saying oh well done Lil thank you oh amazing and women going oh what a heroine you're great but as ever with these things often it can take a while for recognition to happen that recognition I think came really with the whole city of culture celebrations in 2017 there's now a big mural of her Maxine Peake of course did a play about her and she is recognized and those other women who joined are recognized for their activism but at the same time yeah it's not easy to put your head up above the parapet is it no, we should probably mention that you got radio systems right fitted in the boats. Is that that's what they managed to do? That was one of the problems. Yeah, I think the the women had a list of something like twenty demands, and one of them had said to the politicians they eventually met, you know, we're not leaving till we get them. And actually, they got them all. Mo Molan, you talk about the fact the power of women and, and harnessing the women of the communities and making sure that they're on board with things because they are pivotal if you want to get something done. So. Yeah, I wanted to mention Bessie Braddock and Ken Dodd on that train down from Liverpool Lime Street. That gave me such a tickle, uh, pun intended. Oh, can you imagine the conversations they're going to have on the way? And he's going off to do whatever he's doing down south, and then she's going off to the House of Commons. And there's not a lot in in that. There's, but they're both in the same job, basically, are they not? 
in a strange sort of way because Bessie Braddock was this battling Bessie Braddock, a politician of the 50s, 60s, 70s from Liverpool. She's there in the House of Commons. She's got this... It's it's real, but it's a persona. She's everybody's granny. You know, she's this the classic northern matriarch, but who will happily fire an air pistol into the ceiling of the House of Commons, much to the annoyance of the Speaker, who calls her out of order. And she says, well, you've got to be out of order to get anything done round here. And the air pistols were because she was trying to do something about kids on the streets in Liverpool not having anything to do and turning to crime. Yeah, and in a sense, Ken Dodd, you know, famously a comedian who would do hours and hours long shows um, and reduce audiences to, to helpless laughter. His power resided in his tickling stick. He was a classic, you know, a jester figure. Fools of the medieval times would run around with these phallic symbols. And I love, I just love the poetry of the fact that in Liverpool Lime Street Station, we have a statue of Ken Dodd with his tickling stick and Bessie Braddock holding an egg, because she is remembered in the fact that whenever you see a lion mark on a British egg, it was Bessie Braddock who's campaigning, put it there. Something about the ultimate northern femininity, the egg, and the ultimate northern masculinity in the tickling stick. And of course, other depictions of northern femininity and masculinity are available, but they were particular Liverpudlian versions, both powerful in their way, not obvious power, maybe, but very strong people. And then the other one, I think she needs her own film. What a legend. Tell me about Lily Parr. Oh, absolutely. And I love that at the moment, the National Football Museum in uh, Manchester does have an exhibition on her. And Claire Balding has you know, written about her. Surely a film is very near. A footballer, basically, she was part of a factory munitions team that was put together after the First World War. She's this, this charismatic figure. Her, her manager said, you know, she's not just the best female left footer. She's the best left footer in the world. She scored literally hundreds of goals for this factory team and the factory team it wasn't just an, an amateur team I mean they played other women's teams all across the country and eventually they like Hilda James went to America and did demonstration sports basically first world war all the blokes are off at war what should we watch for entertainment? All the blokes have gone, oh, we'll watch women footballers. Brilliant. And actually the game became really popular. Lily's team that she led, often while smoking a woodbine, literally playing while smoking a woodbine. She's six foot two. She lives um, openly with a fellow nurse, a woman called Mary. Very unusual at that time for women to be able to be openly gay. Yeah, they get crowds of 53,000 when they play the Everton ladies team. But then in 1920, the FA, the Football Association, says, oh, actually, the men have come back. You're all banned from men's grounds because it's football is not a game for ladies, obviously. And so the team continued and, you know, Lily was part of it for many years, but no longer with the status that they had managed to have. So it's only now that we've got England's lionesses having regained some of that ground, finally. But yeah, Lily was a towering figure in all sorts of ways. And again, like Hilda James, she was really funny. But then charisma, in order to do what you do, 
command attention, have the confidence. It's kind of, it's all about a perfect storm in a human being, isn't it? And I think that's one of those factors. Yeah, absolutely. And again, maybe a northernness allows this perhaps a bit more. There's, you know, being larger than life. And that was rarely allowed. Women, shrink yourselves, know your place. But, but actually, they were able to break out of those barriers, have a showmanship, which, a show, sorry, <laughs> a show personship. Oh, it's so embedded in the language, isn't it? A show personship that was also really powerful so they were big they were able to be but Lily Parr was big she was a big personality and a big talent and very inspiring definitely a film should be definitely and I think that's all part of it like you said she she was openly gay living with her partner she was six foot two she was to kick her left foot the way she it's all part of that it's her deciding at whatever age she was maybe she had a role model that she saw and went yeah that's me I can see that that happened within that human being and she would have had to have been funny because of what the flack she would have had to have taken and it's all part of that as well isn't it developing the ability to deflect when someone <laughs> talk about football, right? but the ability to def- deflect when someone was trying to put you in your box and she's like no that's not gonna happen and, and if you could be funny you can do a lot with that you can deflect it you can win people over you can lead it's, it's a very useful tool as you would know I'll tell you what that's making me wonder because again it's an, it's a northern stereotype that on the one hand I resist the idea that northerners are more funny um than other people but I think there is something in humor is a tool humor is a strategy it's making me wonder and I love this thought and I am sad that we'll never know I wonder if Hilda of Whitby was funny. I wonder if Carty Mantua was funny. And as I say, we're never going to know, are we? Because Tacitus, the Roman historian, is not going to go, brackets, by the way, Carty Mantua, she was hilarious. <laughs> and Hilda of Whitby's rarely written about. I would absolutely love if humour was a strategy that they also had and used. It's really hard to bring back out of history the fact that somebody made people laugh unless they were a comedian and unless the contemporary audiences said they were really funny. Yeah, charisma is a funny one. You have to find it between the lines. You can see it when you go, well, hold on a minute, that's a bit odd. Why did that happen when this person was like this all the way along? And it's because someone's come in who's obviously got absolute charisma up the wazoo and just totally charmed the pants off of this person quite literally in some cases and and you're like oh what what happened there you this normally very centered clever person has just made a decision and you're like that's got to be it it's the unknown factor that you can't quite put your finger on is that human beings had the ability to charm people and and you've got to think that I think you know bringing the whole of the Brigantes together in in a way that no one else did and then Lily's being able to sustain that career for as long as she did. I think it's all there and you've got to do it between the lines. So, yes, it is conjecture, but I cannot imagine that that's not part of the package. And I love that you talk about Tacitus, you know, and Tacitus, who was not funny. (laughs) (laughs) No. It's not necessarily going to talk about that at all because he's all about politics and making a point about the Republic. So how are you going to quantify that and put that in the history books? You're not. You're going to have to read between the lines, folks, which is what we're doing here because otherwise these women wouldn't get talked about. So, you know, we are going to just talk a little bit about their legacy. I think we've kind of touched on it. As a group, as a community, because we're not talking about individuals because obviously there are some very tangible legacies that these women are leaving and have left. What would you say is a collective 
as a community, legacy is, and I guess we can talk about what it could be as well, maybe. I have to come back to the stereotype I keep trying to avoid, and yet returns and returns and returns as reality. Um, Resilience and grit, so many of those um, women were in some senses de-centred, far from the centres of power, in some way marginalised, and yet they kept on keeping on. And community and a sense of being part of a lineage was often helpful in that so I think if there's a collective legacy it's that and do you think that part of what they would like to be remembered as is northern I can only say because we have to go back to the multiplicity some of them yes a lot of them because I think northernness is this as we've said it's a strong identity it's an identity that often people who feel they are northern they want they're proud of it they want to uphold it they're aware that maybe they have to advocate it a bit or or speak up for it or it's opposed to some other national values for example um so yes a a, a lot of them you think many but then northernness well we could go down a whole other rabbit hole a lot of them would probably be more likely to speak up for um, the particular town or city or region that they came from. So Bessie Braddock, I'm sure, would more likely say, I'm a Liverpudlian. Um, and <laughs> I can't, oh, I was going to say, but I, I can't, ridiculously, Yorkshire wasn't even a thing. Hilda of Whitby, if Yorkshire had been a thing in those days, but it wasn't would have said I'm a Yorkshire woman maybe so we didn't even have the concept of northernness then Helen Sharman the astronaut from Sheffield probably would say I'm a Yorkshire woman but then you know yeah I often go to events where the northerners end up gathering together if we're not in the north and suddenly our individual identities are subordinated to the broader northernness so yes and no in summary just going back to being an identity back at Hilda of Whitby's time because she was all about connecting she wasn't about separating and going well I'm this and you're not this is about connectivity and that's exactly what they're trying to do within that it's something that then has been put on and you know you're talking about Hilda Rogden at one point would have been the the kind of archetype that people would have thought of but that's because she's on television and that's the image that's being banded around so it's about the 20th century isn't it and what happened in the 20th century to define this northerners and it's about the 60s and it's about the northern dramas the kitchen sink dramas but it's about that image that was devised around a time when those images were going around the world by TV film and everything else and music and they were ingrained and that where we're coming out the other end of now is it? And now with, with this plenty of space for all these different facets within that term, while still keeping some of that togetherness that people identify with when they are in a room with someone else from their area, even if they do within that have another identity that divides them again. So I think we should always point out connectivity because I think it's important and community because that's like we said earlier super important so yeah you even mentioned it i think in the in the stage and screen chapter when you say about the women that changed ideas about who and what the north and northern women could be and can be in the future which is you know is interesting because that's again what you're putting out into the world stage and screen was the chapter about that you have anything to say about that she's making me um, um having hashtag northerners so white in my head at the moment it's really important to me that the idea of a future northerner is 
not necessarily a white woman. Fluid would be good, and that felt very important for me to... It was hard to do that earlier in the book and say the identity of woman is more diverse than we seem to have thought for a very long time. Um, But it was important to talk about, for example, April Ashley, who was basically one of the first trans activists. Um, She was from Liverpool and really had to speak up at a time where it was very difficult to speak up. It was important to talk about Ngozi Onwura, who is basically the sister of Chi Onwura, Newcastle Central MP. Basically, Ngozi is the first black British female film director to have directed a sci-fi film. So in my head, there's this line between her and Margaret Cavendish. And I don't... This would be a criticism of the book. The bit where it kind of fulfils all the stereotypes of northernness, it's still a bit irresistible to look at white northern women with northern accents. That's not what the future looks like at all, you know. The future is Labina Himid, who is the artist who has been at the University of Central Lancashire for years, doing amazing Turner Prize winning work and getting a Turner Prize in her 60s. Actually, Cartimandua, Hilda of Whitby, I don't know, I suspect Cartimandua was really interestingly gender fluid. But again, massive speculation, isn't it? We're just... And only by the questions that we're putting out there in this modern world, because I think that, you know, they just didn't name some things. They didn't, they didn't need to put people in boxes in the same way. It just wasn't there. Whereas now we have to go, hold on a minute, you're this or you're that or you're... And, and I think that's part of... We've got to evolve out of that again or back to where it's not about labels. It's just about human beings. But then... Uh, yeah, yeah you're, you're questioning that because, because our, this <laughs> yes, whole book is about identity and people finding an identity. I understand that. And also within their struggle wanting to go I'm doing this for this reason I get it and again it's a human instinct to want to go who am I I am this it's that a perennial paradox yes it'd be great to move beyond labels to just human beings but then labels are often a means by which we can speak up for our rights and our identities so it's kind of both Mm. um I've got the quote in my head where there is power there is resistance and actually a lot of the stories of the northern women in the book they were fighting against some form of power and they were resisting it in some way and I would say maybe that more than anything thinking about it is the collective legacy of northern women if there is one some sort of resistance some sort of outside the box being um i'm just reading cozy fanny tutti the um i want to say almost whole underground avant-garde electronic musician slash artist her book resistors and she's talking about pockets of resistance happen and you, if you are part of those, even if you're not making a massive change, you are slightly shifting the dial on what is possible. And that is the case for so many of the Northern women across the categories, be it politics, be it writing, be it sport, um, be it activism, slightly shifting the dial from usually not the centre of things. Yeah, and to, within that, Nadine Shah talking about, um, you know, n- older voices in music. And, I, you know, I come from a pop music background. So, yes, please, um, Northern or not, just, just older women in music and being seen to still be 
relevant and uh, able and and um, creative and and put, uh, as someone who writes music and sings and will can't ever imagine not doing that. That was lovely to hear and see in the book. Are there any favourite depictions that exist now that we should go and look up, film, TV, stage-wise? And we've mentioned Maxine Peake, and she's probably in all of them. But um, <laughs> and if I mean, you talked yeah. about obviously the obvious ones, Gentleman Jacks, about Anne Lister. Is there anything else? I'm thinking of things that don't any longer exist, and that's frustrating, isn't it? So things come and they're ephemeral. So um, Caroline Bird, the poet, wrote a play, Ellen, about Ellen Wilkinson, one of the first Labour politicians, the kind of early Mormolum of her day um, at Northern Stage. I hope that is revived and tours. Yeah, all Maxine Peake's work, basically, but a lot of it is plays, so you can't necessarily re-find it um sally wainwright's work i do keep carol morley is bringing out a film about a sunderland artist called audrey amos and the film is called something like pirate typist something king because it's what audrey described herself as on her cv at one point and that just sounds amazing and a brilliant example of you know someone who's been lost I talked about an artist called Sheila Fell, who is basically the Van Gogh of uh, Cumbria, working class artist, was helped out by Ellis Lowry, who um, recognised her talent and kind of gave her money, mentored her a bit. But she went off to London. It was quite traumatic by the sounds of it. She died far too young. Um, The phrase she died far too young comes up a lot in the book. But uh, Tully House in Carlisle, who hold a lot of her work, in a cupboard, mostly, as I said when I was doing an event in Carlisle. I was like, well, you've got Sheila Fell here, but most of her work's in a cupboard. Um, and someone from Tully House said, oh, excuse me, um, yes, a lot of her work is not on display, but we're doing a major exhibition about her in 2024. Um, would you like to talk about doing something about or with her uh, life sort of thing? Um, so that is where I am going. And I think Sheila Fell is a bit equivalent to... Andrea Dunbar, Bradford playwright, who was written about by Adele Stripe recently. And the book is called Black Teeth, Brilliant Smile. Yeah. Oh, that is so poignant and powerful. And Andrea Dunbar, there's a documentary about her too. Uh, It's one of the most powerfully poignant documentaries that I have ever seen in my life. Look that up. There's lots of stuff out there. There's these bubblings and murmurings, and there's probably more than I know. This is not quite the moment, but I think in three or four years, when some of this work comes through, we will see a lot more Northern Women biographical works. Ivy Benson and her old girl band as well. That needs to be a film or a show or a you know series. Wouldn't that be an amazing? You can just see because they were, yeah, a dance band. So you'd have these amazing scenes where these... Young women who have been plucked from kind of coal field areas who've played in mining bands and suddenly they're in these big bands and Ivy Benson herself is this big band leader at a time when that was very definitely and still is a man thing. Very good point. That'd be amazing, actually. Light-hearted question to round off with. Uh, superheroes, if if there were, I mean, all of them in some ways, I'm sure, would be in your, your multiverse, but if there was a Northern Woman multiverse... Um, and there were one or two that you could pick out, what would their superpower be? Um, I, I suppose, well, basically, Carti Mandua, isn't she able to, we've, we've talked about this, I think she's able to travel through all space and time, 
basically. Um, but I think um, the, the superpower that I would give to Hilda Ogden and maybe any of the other Northern women who need it is the power to reduce any patronising man, particularly any man who says anything condescending about their accent, um, the power to turn them into a Greg sausage roll. <laughs> so yeah. useful too, because you're going to obviously yeah, add that to your lunch. Useful. And lunch. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Dr. Kate Fox, you've been amazing. Thank you very much for being here and for your time and um, for discussing this brilliant subject. And I, I go on all day talking to you about it, but you have to go. But thank you very much for being here. Well, Lindsay, thank you. And actually, I now have a lot of podcast listening to catch up on because every episode of the podcast you've mentioned, I've been like, hang on, I, I, I want to know more about Beth of Hardwick. Hang on. Ooh, Pamela Coleman-Smith, she designed tarot cards. I need to know more about her. Okay, so thank you. I think we've shown how the connections and the legacies proliferate and interthread and intertwine and it's a powerful thing. Thank you. Awesome. Have a brilliant day. Spirit of Cartomantua be with you always. Thank you so much, Kate. Take care.